Welcome to Did You Know, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. Today we're in conversation with Cookie Price, Senior Label Manager at The Orchard and one of the true greats of the UK music business. As with all our guests, we like to ask them why they chose the music industry. Here's what Cookie had to say when I asked her. Why did I choose the music business or did the music business choose me? That's the question. I think, you know what it is? Music came into our lives from our parents. So it was something that was instilled in, in me and everybody around me from a very early age. Music was played in the house. So it was, it was second nature. That's all we did. We listened to music. We listened to vinyl because obviously all that digital stuff and that wasn't around them days. So we used to take time, <laughs> go through records and we used to spend time on weekends going down to the record stores in like Clapham Junction. Um, you know, flicking through stuff, flicking through the imports and listening to all, you know, the radio stations that used to come on on Saturday nights, like Greg, was it Greg Edwards on a Saturday night, live from the Lyceum. So we were tuned into radio stations before we were even going out, before we knew about clubs. It was just second nature and it was just something that kind of touched us. It touched us right there, right there in the heart. We didn't really realise there was a career that could be had out of it. So we just loved music. You talk about the music you loved and music that inspired you through your youth and through your early years. Tell us about the young Cookie Price, what she was like, what she was listening to, where were you raving? What were the things that led you to that first part of your career in the music business? Firstly, obviously, it was pirate radio stations and community radio stations, which were the BBCs, the LBCs, um, you know, shows like Rice and Peas that used to come on on a Saturday. Those DJs that used to play out of town and they were also on the pirate radio stations. You know, we tuned in analogue. Us going out to clubs, that didn't really happen until probably mid-80s, so probably around 80, 83, 84, because it wasn't until 85 that we, we entered that rap competition at the WAG Club. Um, and from there, that's when we really started going out. But prior to that, we were, you know, listening to soul, funk, boogie, reggae, all the kind of music that was um, played on radio at that time, and there weren't many radio stations that we had access to. So come Friday night, we were tuned in. Saturday night, we were tuned in. We had no clue what club nights looked like. But luckily, um, Susan's brother, um, Andrew, he was in, in the Pasadenas. And prior to them being the Pasadenas, they were a dance troupe. And those guys used to go out to the clubs, to the park. They were out. So me and Susie was, you know, be watching them get ready to go out. And, you know, when Andrew came back, he would tell us the stories about what's going on in the club. So we learned from them. We spent time listening to music at home, listening to our parents' records and, and looking at record sleeves and kind of like, you know, reading all the, the credits and not knowing how that product, how it came to be this, this physical thing. We were mostly listening to American music. There was a lot of, you know, British reggae that was happening, like Lovers Rock, a lot of kind of like soul bands and local things were happening. But we were kind of spoon fed on US music, which was, again, natural to us. It took a minute for us to kind of figure out where we were taking this and how we were going to enjoy the stuff that we were listening to. And the fact that we became came artists and began writing, that it wasn't a plan. We didn't say, right, we are going to get to the music industry. We didn't know what the music industry looked like. But we kind of just figured things out. And when we did start going out, you know, we had to kind of like educate ourselves. And we weren't too fussed about what was going on on the business side. We just loved good music. We wanted to be where the cool people were. You know, when we discovered, 
you know, the whole hip hop thing, Breakers, the Poppers in Covent Garden. We wanted to get to know that scene. And that was a very, very British thing. And was it even called hip hop at that time? It was rap, rap music. music. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And um, who did we see on top of the pops? Was it Grandmaster Flash, The Message? All those kind of records that kind of resonated with us. And we don't know why. It was just, we were drawn to it. It's like, you know what, we could, we could do this. Plus, we used to go to a youth club at our church hall on a Friday. So that was our moment to kind of like take over the place because there was a stage in the church hall. And we'd play our music on, on a cassette player, make up dance routines, be singing songs and just, just generally having fun. But there was never a thought in our mind that we're going to make a career out of this. We were just enjoying the moment. So we should go back a bit because obviously there's a point where you're into the music business, you're starting to make music, you're building your own scene with other people. But Susie was an inte- clearly has been, was, and continues to be an integral part of that. So what we don't know is how did you meet? We went to the same nursery school and the nursery was in the church hall. Like I live on this road and there's just a road between us. From there, we went to the same primary school, which was Honeywell School on Honeywell Road in Battersea. The only time we separated was when we went to a secondary school. The evenings and the weekends, we was always together. There was never, never any, no degree of separation whatsoever. We spent the weekends listening to music. Now, that is a long time, but you were part of what was the the beginnings of, of UK rap, UK hip-hop, you know, I mean, groundbreakers. How... Did you take on that role? What was that moment where you thought, you know what, we can actually, we can do this? You know what, it was the support of um, Brian and Robert and all the guys that we used to hang out with in in our area. And because we were writing and, you know, we messed around with a bit of singing. Let's not get it twisted in our own time. That's what we wanted to do. We wanted to be singers. Who were the inspirations? It's got to be all the greats. It's Stephanie Mills, the Chaka Khans, Patrice Russians. Um, it was on that level because that's what we were weaned on. And, um, you know, we, we began to realise that's not really going to be our path. So when this thing came along, which kind of like felt like an easier thing to get into, we didn't really know what we're doing. Literally, we were in Susan's kitchen and we were listening to The Message. That song was quite a long song. So we decided we're going to write a rap. Didn't know what it's going to look like, what it's going to sound like, but we spent we spent probably a few days, it could have been another few weeks, but we wrote this rap and the rap was 15 minutes long because we had no concept of chorus verse, chorus verse. We were just doing something because we enjoyed doing this. And then we kind of said to ourselves, you know what, we can rap. So the turning point for us from there, we there's a place called, um, it's called Batsy Art Centre now, but it was Batsy Town Hall back in the day. And it was... It was kind of like a community space. It was a space that we would turn up, like all of us would just turn up. The breakers would turn up with their boombox, their lino. And we'll just walk into this building, find a room and just set up, play music, dance. Nobody bothered us because it was a community space. So we spent a lot of time, you know, there on, the, on Fridays and the weekends. And it was one Sunday, there was an event going on at, at the town hall and... BBC Radio London were there. There was some, I think it might have been live broadcast going on or some kind of variety thing, but it was, I do remember it being daylight. So it wasn't, it wasn't a nighttime event. So, you know, we were there, we were there milling around and um, this guy came up to us and um, he came up to us and he's like, you know, what do you girls do? And we said, we rap, we're rappers. 
We've never touched a mic in our life. We've never performed. We never. We just said we're rappers. You know, what the heck? What have we got to lose? Who's going to challenge us? And it happened to be Sid Burke. Because I don't know if anybody remembers Sid Burke, who used to have a show on um, LBC that was called Rice and Peas. And that used to come on on a Sunday. And that was a real kind of like family programming. It was, you know, for the West Indian community. So he took us into this room. He'd done an interview. He broadcasted the interview. And that's when things just kind of like happened. A few days or a few weeks later, we started to get phone calls. And in them days, we had one phone in the house. We started to get calls to come and do shows. And it, they were like local shows. Uh, we'd done a performance at the Brixton Town Hall, but it was variety shows or community events, local things in Battersea or very small where we'd just walk with our cassette tape and we'd just go and perform. There were shows where maybe we might have got 20 quid in our pocket and maybe nothing in our pocket, but we enjoyed doing that. And we also had the support of, of the guys who would come with us because we were nervous as hell. So we just started doing things and enjoying what we're doing, not knowing that we want to take this as a career because we had jobs. I was a chef at the Ministry of Defence. Um, Susan was a nursery school teacher. So this thing was like weekends and evenings for us. But we had this passion for it and had this vision that we are going to be singers. For what reason, I don't know. Things just again just started escalating. And then this event came up at um, the White Club that a DJ used to run on a Friday night. There was a rap competition. So I said, right, we're going down there. But we were nervous as hell. But the guy said, you guys could win this. So we went down there. It was a hip hop night. We put our names down on this list. And I think that list um, became so overwhelming because so many people entered. And it wasn't like, you know, if you turn up, you want to rap that night, you just put your name down. I can visualize it now. The place was crowded. We were standing kind of like away from the stage, just not even talking to each other. We're so nervous. You just don't talk to each other. And boom, we killed it. It was such an amazing, amazing journey. It was an amazing atmosphere. The crowd was going nuts. I think when we performed, we could barely hear ourselves. And, and then when it was announced that we won, oh my days, our feet didn't touch the floor after that. The prize on the night was £200, which in today's money is how much? About a million, and it's a cool mill. And we had a recording contract, which us, we didn't have a clue about what recording contracts were, what they meant. We weren't even interested. We just wanted to be a part of a scene, a little community that was building, um, and be part of this culture that was kind of growing. We just wanted to rap. And if we had signed or recorded, I think our lives would have probably been a mess. But we chose not to do that. We just continued doing what we were doing. And, you know, it was amazing. When you walked off stage at the Wag Club after winning the competition with a cool £200 to go in your pocket, did you at any point think, this is going to change my life? This, 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 I'm going to move in a completely new direction? Or was it just a case of, we've won, all blessed, let's just keep it moving and continue doing what we're doing? Exactly that. We just, we won something and we felt, we felt elated and we felt supported by the people that was with us. And we felt on a high and we felt a certain, being very patriotic to, there was something about South London at that time where things were kind of booming. And no, we weren't, we didn't think this is the next step to our career. It was a form of acceptance for us. We felt like we've done this. Um, so people would take us seriously. So if we were anywhere on the scene, particularly you know, being out and being a part of that community, there weren't many girls around. And you had to kind of, when you was in that space, you wanted to be taken seriously. And because we loved our craft and, and we, we never wanted to jeopardise our reputation, we were there for the music, we were there for the culture, and we wanted to be a part of that. But they had to accept you into it. And I think we came with the credentials. 
Let's talk about you as a woman in a scene that was clearly very male-dominated, particularly more so in the UK than the US, because in the US you're about to look across the walls where there were women who were doing some incredible things at the time, whether it be Latifah or... Finesse and Sinquest, Frickin' Frack, MC Light. That's right, Salt, yeah, salt and Pepper, etc., mm-hmm. etc. But over here, I mean, you were very much in the minority. How did you deal with that? What were your male peers like in dealing with you? They were fine. There were a few that were a little bit kind of off-key with us because that's just how it was, isn't it? These girls step on the scene. And in fact, prior to us even becoming a part of that little community and us discovering those guys that were breakers, we used to go down to Covent Garden to kind of like case out the joint because we'd hear about certain people, certain breakers and this, that and the other. And we were we were outsiders. So we used to go down there to see who was there breaking, but not, not um, and this was before the Wag Club as well, not identifying who we were. We just wanted to do something. And there was a point where we felt the only way we were going to be accepted, we'd have to put on this kind of like, this fake American accent thing, right? And it was, it was fun, right? So we would be in Covent Garden and people probably thought we were tourists and we got people talking to us and just general people. And we'd met a few, you know, breakers, people that we never saw again after that. But we, we felt that we needed to be something else to be accepted. But once we kind of presented who we were and we delivered the goods, that was like, we're here. And we never had any issues. I wouldn't say we had any issues with guys. I think, I think we felt quite protected, but it took a minute for that protection to come into play because I think people were kind of a bit dubious about who we were and also because we carried ourselves in a certain way. We weren't your average females. We were B-girls because we wanted to be taken seriously and not because we wanted to seek their approval per se, but we, we wanted to do us. We were good. So we saw ourselves as competition against anybody Man, woman, dog, puss, whatever you want. I can remember, yeah, obviously back in the day, working for record companies at that point, there was a moment where UK rap became very fashionable. It became an acceptable part of the mainstream music business. What was the moment when you became part of that world? I know things probably happened quickly, but at the time it felt like years and years we were doing things before we became what we became. But because we were beginning to go out to clubs and we got a reputation as, you know, the cookie crew, people knew us, basically. We'll be rapping at certain clubs. We'll get invited to do certain things or just to be in that space. It actually kicked off when we got a call from who were then were the Beatmasters, but before they became the Beatmasters. And they were a team that created, they created ads, like TV ads, and they needed somebody to do voiceovers. So they called us and we went down to see them and... We'd done a few TV spots. I can't remember if any of them got played. But anyway, we were their voiceover talent. And we kind of realised that we enjoyed working together. Their studio was in, in Wardour Street. So they had all the equipment and everything because we would walk with our cassette tapes, right, for everything. We just bonded. And then we kind of thought, you know, it would be kind of cool to work together. And plus, we were doing shows at that time, you know, small shows where we would walk with our cassette tapes, our metal cassette tapes. And we told them, like, this is how we perform. And it would be good to have some kind of like original music, like backing tracks, whether they we give them a beat and they copy the beat. We just wanted that sound of it being produced. So they'd done that for us. I think we may have done a couple of tracks and yeah, we just we were just hanging out, go down the studio, hang out. Then they created this backing track, sound bed or whatever you call it. And they wanted us to write a rap to it. You know us, we can write raps to anything. So we said, yeah, we'll write a rap. So we wrote this rap, right? And it, it became Rock the House. 
the way it sounds now isn't how it begun. It was their project, basically. It wasn't like we are making this to make a record. But it was no, there was no plans around it. We just were hanging out and just vibes in. And literally, this thing just turned into a beast. It wasn't a piece of music that we were taking with us to say, this is going to be the kickstart of our career. It was just, here it is. Now, with that track, they mixed it. They messed around with it, played around with it to a point. It came to what it is, what it sounds like, which was basically one of the first hip hop, UK hip hop house records. I, I can't remember whether there was into that scene at the time as to why the music was skewed that way. But, we you know, it was nothing to us. It's like, whatever, it's just a track. But it was theirs, obviously, and we the rappers. The track got into the, the palms of Mark Moore. Mark Moore had a relationship with Rhythm King. I think it was doing well in the clubs and he took it to the label. Label were interested. So it just got to a point where it's like, you know, they wanted a meeting with us. I think we went for a meeting. But we didn't understand the business anyway. We're like, you know, you can put it out. Just do what you're doing with it. It was a hit the second time around because it was released and then re-released, if I remember. And then it just kind of escalated. And it was kind of like happening in the background. It wasn't really on our forecourt because we weren't mixed up in the music business. And this damn thing was kind of like making noise in the US at the same time. So, yeah, it kind of like just got to a point where this thing was doing well. We didn't understand. We didn't have management. We didn't understand the legality behind it. It was just doing what it was doing. And then it charted. In the old days, when something got in the charts or certain things, like you get you on a live interview, you know, your record's doing well. We didn't want anything to do with this track because it wasn't us. And I think at that time, we were mentally preparing ourselves to kind of have this career. And we didn't want to ruin our reputation as hardcore rappers, right? So we kind of disowned it, that record. We are grateful for it because if it wasn't for Rock the House, we wouldn't have had all those majors knocking at our door. I think and we may have even come to see you back in the day. You may well have done, but I've got a funny feeling somebody offered a lot more money than I was able to put on the table. I think so. I, w- I would say so, Adrian. But we definitely came to see you. I remember it was in, the office was in Soho. Um, another thing that happened during that period was um, the, the woman that eventually became our manager. And this was just us being a part of the scene, right? There was this woman called Jean Davenport, amazing, amazing woman. Um, she's passed away now. And she used to run the Shaw Theatre. She also used to run all the bookings and you know all the entertainment at the town and country club. So she brought over people like Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers, um, Curtis Blow. All the gigs that happened at Shaw Theatre or Town and Country Club was organised by Jean Davenport. So when this show was happening at Shaw Theatre, she was running around London, obviously looking for UK talent to be a part of this event. And she had heard about us. And the night we met Jean Davenport, an amazing night, it was Run DMC were playing at Busby's that night. And we went. And then this woman comes up to us. She's like running around. She's like, are you the cookie cruise? I'm like, yeah, you know, get talking. She tells us who she is what she's doing she goes I've been looking for you girls because I got this show it's called Rap Attack she's bringing over Bambata Lisa Lee all the crew from like the, the Beat Street film and she wants us to perform yeah she she became very close to us and that was a meeting that was if that didn't happen I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today to be honest so yeah so we've done this show at Shaw Theatre it was us and a whole bunch of other UK talent and I think shows went on for about a week and it was kind of like from there that things escalated and people wanted to book us for things, like we didn't have no management, nothing. And we, we said to Jean, we want you to manage us. And she's like, 
She's not sure because it's not what she does. So in the end, she did manage us and she looked after us very well. She was the one that walked us through everything. When when Rock the House took off and all the labels were ringing and, and all the publishing companies were ringing, her and another wonderful woman who was her sister-in-law called Mary McLennan, they became our management team. And they were the ones that just kind of like took control. They sat and had all those meetings because me and Susan were like, Psh, I haven't got a clue. We'd go and sit in these meetings with lawyers and label heads. We'll be sitting on the sofa in the back. Jean and Mary will be up there, like, having these meetings. And let me tell you, those two women were tough. Didn't take no shorts from no one. People tried to either take the piss or manipulate them, like, you can't fuck with Jean and Mary, let me tell you something. But they set us up good. They negotiated everything. We had no clue what publishing meant. When we were getting all these publishing offers, we were like, why do people want to give us money? We don't understand. Give us money. Because, girls, um, what it is, you write songs and blah, blah. So it took a while for us. When we started seeing the checks and like, whoa, okay, I understand publishing now. And it was an important thing that you write your own song, which we did anyway, that you write your own songs. But it was them that educated us. Those, they were the ones who set us up as a limited company. Um, they put us on a payroll. They made sure we put a deposit down on a property. Um, they taught us everything. Literally, you know, you hear you hear tragic stories about managers ripping people off. Oh, they signed a recording contract and only getting one pound. The manager's got a big car and doing things and the, the artist is broke. None of that with us. Let me tell you something. If there were more Gene and Marys around, there would be more happy artists. So I'm thankful for that. What was your experience of being signed to a label as hip hop slash rap artists trying to do something that was absolutely true to the core of who you were. How did you find that experience in the early days? Obviously, you were part of the emerging crew of the Derek Bees and obviously your sisters, the Weird Papas, and you know, and others at that time that were doing similar things. What was your experience of your label like? Well, we we were very lucky actually, and when we were having all our label meetings, we were we were never in a rush because we didn't understand the business and we were very wary about um tragic stories or being ripped off and we were very careful. Plus, we managed ourselves prior to that. We were able to do stuff. But when it got to a point where we needed management and we needed lawyers and solicitors and all those people to jump in, we realised it became serious. But we were very lucky that we were quite headstrong, stubborn in some cases. Um, we told them what we wanted and things were amicable. It was, you know, um, Pete Tong was our A&R. We had a good relationship with our label as well. And we just made sure we delivered. And, you know... Back then, it was like people want their albums, but they want to make sure they have their three singles and that remixes are off that single. So there was there was a whole process. And out of all the labels that we sat with, London Records, FFRR, um, felt the right space for us, the right home, because they listened. We told them exactly what we want to do. We said, we do not want to make more music like Rock the House. And I'm sure they would have loved for us to make more. Because, you know, even back then, we wanted to still retain our credibility not even understanding that signing to a record label is a business, right? It's a business loan and everybody wants a return on their investment. And we know that. We, we kind of grew to learn that, but we didn't want people to control us as such. So we were very stubborn in some cases. And, you know, our deal was um, London Records, which is a polygram worldwide. So even travelling to the US and slotting into that culture and retaining our British identity was fun and challenging at some points because we refused to be controlled or told what to wear or how to dress. But it took us just a little bit to realise this is a real business, you know. Let's talk about some of the artists that you come across during that period and what they meant to you because you've worked alongside iconic, legendary hip-hop artists. And when I kind of read your bio, you sent through, even I was like, 
Yeah, that's strong. That list is strong. So tell us about the people you've worked with, but then pick the one artist that kind of meant something to you or gave you something in terms of supporting, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, live wise. You know, well, all of them were amazing experiences because um, at the time being chosen to support an act on their tour in the UK was a big deal because you were chosen for that. You know, whether our records were doing well or that particular artist wanted you to be on that bill. Out of all of them, our favourites were definitely being on the road with Della Soul, Public Enemy. Um, we supported Bobby Brown at Wembley. And that was an, that was an amazing one because... We were on tour at the time. Bobby Brown was coming to the UK to do a few nights at Wembley. And it was those days, I'm sure they still do it now. So when a label knows that an artist is going to be on tour, people pitch for their artists to support, right? And we was on the list of um, people that Mr. Brown wanted to, to support. And um, we just remember being on tour and our managers telling us, right, we submitted the, the video because um, we had to submit videos, VHS, big old VHS them days, none of that digital, I email you my video link, none of that business. And then we was on the road, and um, when you're on the road, you'd hire those big, massive mobile phones, remember, in the old days. And was on the tour bus, and I think our manager got a call, and then she hung up from the call, and she goes, guess what, you guys? Bobby Brown chose you lot to support. And we went ape shit. We're like, Wow. I mean, that was a big deal for us. We had merchandise because we was at Wembley Arena. And that was incredible. You know, we rehearsed. We rehearsed. Our show was tight. Our dancers were amazing. FDM, you know, big shout out to Eugene, James and, and Special T, who's passed on, unfortunately. But they were best set of dancers in the UK. We wanted to get out there and be the best. We wanted to get out there and do London Proud. We wanted to get out there and do South London Proud. And we did exactly that. We'd done so many and we supported Guy. We were just a support act of the century, weren't we? It was fun. We, we had fun. I just want to read through your list of greats, and I need to pick you up on one great, because on your list of greats that you sent through, it's uh, Gangstar, can't mm-hmm. argue with that, Stetsasonic, oh, gosh. Black Sheep, oh, Davey yeah. DMX, mm-hmm. and then some guy called Danny D. Oh, that dude. We'll talk, about, we'll talk about that dude last, yeah, even though he set us up good. Big up to Danny D. So in terms of working with Gangstar, Black Sheep, Stetsasonic, Davey DMX... We were just blessed. That was all our choice. It was our choice. We knew who we wanted to work with, right? We were fans of people we wanted to work with. And at the time, we were signed to... We were managed by Empire Management, so that's how we hooked up with, with Gangstar. And we, we were in the US, like, living and working at the time, and that was our opportunity for our management and everybody to kind of connect. And the good thing about working with Gangstar was we spent quality time with them. Guru and Premier were absolute gentlemen they looked after us we hung out they just kind of showed us a good time and we felt protected at the same time it was going to be the first time that we had somebody write like some lyrics for us because we were very like "Mm, what people write lyrics like no we do that stuff ourselves and they're like no they do that all the time but it was an honor the first track that Guru had written for us we we didn't like it because it was a little bit too it wasn't us basically like the content like we don't say them kind of things and it was like oh okay just write another one and he came up with a word to the conscious so it's like that's what we're about and that's the good thing about us spending time with people to get to know us again working with Black Sheep we were lucky to work with them before 
they were releasing their stuff and they kind of blew up. Uh, Stetsasonic, we are the biggest fans of Stetsasonic. So having the pleasure of working with those guys was amazing. But again, we spent quality time with everybody. Davey DMX, incredible, absolutely incredible producer. And they were gentle with us. They were respectful of us. They had a lot of respect towards our management, just everything we wanted to do. They actually listened. And it wasn't in the studio, 24 hours, you're out. Our things took weeks to record. Sometimes we'll go to the US, come back, we need to go back to revocal something. So it was about spending quality time and we were very, um, very protective of our reputation and what we delivered and what we brought back. You know, and there was this other dude you just mentioned him, Danny D. You know, he's an absolute genius. You know, we had so much fun working with Danny. Yeah, man, there was a lot going on. And also we worked with um, Edwin Starr. We worked with Roy Ayers. Again, those two legends. So you have all this amazing success. You work with some incredible artists. What was the point where you thought, I'm going to become an executive? There's another door that I can see opening that, that I want to walk through. What made you make that transition from one to the other? It was an organic transition, you know. I think it was when we got to a point where the music they wanted us to make wasn't what we were feeling here. It's like, it became a bit difficult, a bit of a chore. Got to make, you know, they want their pop hits. It's like, we couldn't deliver. I suppose we felt like we couldn't deliver. And mentally, we were, I think we were ready to kind of wind down. And when we did wind down, it, it wasn't a case of, big news piece oh cookie crew's been dropped it wasn't that it was literally you know we rolled out our contract and we didn't want to continue and I think we felt a little bit tired anyway yeah and I think we wanted a break so it was kind of like our decision and the funny thing is when we wound down with London Records we still started getting offers and conversations with other labels and it was a difficult decision to make because when you sever that cord you sever a certain revenue stream. And um, I suppose we were happy to do that. And, you know, you just got to jump up and get in your hustle. So I knew I wanted to still remain creative, but, you know, work at a label. I don't really know what that is. How do you apply for it? I don't know what that was. I just kind of like got on a hustle, really. And I, I just kind of semi-reinvented myself without technology. It's like, I've got to do something, right? And I thought the way of getting into labels were that talent agencies, like signing up with with the recruitment agencies and getting, you know, a few gigs here and there. And that's exactly what happened. I went and registered with a bunch of agencies and got my foot in the door by, you know, a couple of reception jobs there, then that. And I just kept, kept getting callbacks, different department callbacks. And I was, you know, I was good at whatever I was doing. I started doing reception at, it was MCA at the time. I'd done like reception work at other labels as well and working in different departments, just covering people that might have been off. And I just... Ended up in the press department and I kind of liked it there. I liked that, that um, it was just a nice environment and I was learning something. I was getting to understand what press was all about. What was a blessing is I was working, there's this artist called A+. There's a young, young guy, he had, this, he had this track out and it was, he was using a Beethoven beat. So he was coming over to do promo, right? Because I was the one that used to put people's promo um, itineraries together, you know, all the mail outs and all that kind of stuff. Internally, we're putting everything together, the itinerary. I saw on the itinerary from the US this name, which I recognise this name. And on the other side of the pond, this person also recognised <laughs> my name. Happened to be Vivian Scott Chu, right? From Time Zone International. 
because she was the one that used to travel with all the artists. She was an international marketing person that will, you know, educate them about what's going on outside of the UK. And people used to hire her to travel with artists. So she was traveling with this artist called A Plus because he was going to be doing t Top of the Pops and CD UK. So I'd coordinated all the, um, the rehearsals time, the dancers. And one of the dancers um, happened to be a friend of mine called Face. And she was um, the choreographer at the time where everybody booked her to do things. So I booked her to do the choreography for his TV shows and for any gigs that he was doing. And, um, and I booked the Pineapple Studios for rehearsals. And they'd flown in and I'd gone round to Pineapple Studios to go and meet them. Walked into the rehearsal space and there was this woman. And she looks at me, she goes, Cookie? I said, Vivian? We connected again. But, you know, the blessing of that week, that was the very same week I was made redundant from Universal. When we connected, I told her what was happening. I said, this is my last week, but I'm calling all of this because I organised it and I don't want to let anybody down. And it was from there. And, you know, we got talking and she said, how do you feel about coming over and working for me? So within a couple of months, I worked my butt off, made sure my shit was in order in the UK. And I went over and started working with Viv. And the interesting thing about going to work in the US is how people received me back in the UK. That was interesting. The UK is a very interesting space, particularly in the industry that we work in. Um, we see that things are changing. We're seeing, you know, people of colour in, in different spaces. Back then, there was a handful of us. But there was, God, it's such a, sometimes it's like a triggering thing. You know that you're, you're right and you should be in different spaces, but you never pull through the ranks right? No matter how hard you try or what you do or who you are, what your, um, what your background is, what your credentials are, what your merits are, that didn't mean anything to anyone. So going to the US and seeing that flip around and the fact that me going to the US and being a, a person of colour with a British accent, that was a bonus in itself, you know, and Vivian wanted to have like an international feel to her company. Like somebody picks up the phone, it's like there's a British voice at the end of the phone because that was her nature of her business. But also in the US, they respected the work that you put in past, present and what was going to be the future. If Vivian didn't take me to New York, I probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you because I think she was the one that reminded me of who I was, how good I am and there are possibilities. Right. So when I came back to the UK, I came back to the UK with a different energy. It's like I can do this and I am better than X, Y and Z, but we were never going to get our foot in the door. And when I was working in the UK, just some of the things, things that I experienced and kind of witnessed in these times now, I still get triggered by what I now know as microaggressions, like the way urban music was treated. Going to the US. It was a different space for me. I changed. I was invited to meetings. I was included in conversations. And the good thing as well is that I was communicating with people in the UK that probably never had a time of day for me when I was in the UK. So that was interesting. And also going to the US and seeing people that look like us. They have their own problems, yes. Those problems do exist. Um, but you stand a better chance of being being accepted into an environment and being a part of something where you're going to grow together. In the UK, I wasn't getting that. So let's look at two of those things. First of all, working with Vivian, you're doing incredibly well. And as we know, there is a different system that works in, in America with regards to equality and opportunity and you know the fact that black executives or executives of colour get a greater opportunity. Seeing that, why did you choose to come back? 
there was an element of something that I was missing here and I wanted to be back and make it work here. And even coming back, applying for jobs that had my name written all over it and been told you're not experienced enough blew my mind. But I was determined to do it in this space because this is where I'm from. I was missing something about London. I really was. I wanted to come back for a bit. But the good thing about any work that I've done, it's always been like London, New York based. So I've always been back and forth. So I haven't, I haven't been disconnected from what built my confidence. So you come back to the UK. And one of the things I wanted to explore with you, which is the thing you said at the top was, there wasn't many people that looked like me. How did that make you feel trying to get into and operate in a space where you weren't reflected back? I think I was just determined, as well as it being our career and keeping our lights on and keeping food in our fridge. It's like, this is what we do. And particularly when you're working the music that you're passionate about and you know about it more than those that are telling you, telling you about yourself, it's like, this ain't right. So I, was, I think I was determined that this is, this is what I can do. It, it took time. Let's not get it twisted. Right? We still have our hurdles to jump over, but I wanted to win. What were some of the challenges that you faced as a black woman in the music business in the UK? What was it like for you? Not being included. Not being included in music um, or meetings that you were going to be working across. You know, little things like that, not being included in being invited to that event or sitting around that dinner table with those artists that I'm working. Because when those artists came to town, they're looking for the people of colour. That's what they're looking at. When they find you, they find you. So it was that that I found challenging. There were moments where it's like, why am I doing this? Why am I not in this space? They didn't want our faces around that table for fear of what I don't know. Us getting on. Building a, you know, a working relationship. I don't know what it was, but um, I think we're kind of discovering and know what it was. But at the time, there wasn't enough of us to fight the cause. Looking at that, then, Cookie, how do you think the business has changed with regard to those moments of opportunity and the conversation? Like I say, like the conversation we're having now. What it is, it's, it's this generation now. It's the millennials, right? The ones that are in control and the power of social media, the power of that people are talking directly to each other. You know, back in our days, you can't talk to that person over there because you've got to go through this, that person. Everyone's like holding, holding those gates closed, right? But now you can't control that, right? So the artists are speaking directly with their fans and vice versa. Things have gotten better because the younger people, um, they, got, they have fire in their belly, right? And um, they're not scared. They're not afraid to speak. This is that generation. And, you know, what happened a couple of years ago, 2020, I think that spoke volumes. And I sometimes wonder if 2020 didn't happen, if the pandemic didn't kick off, if George Floyd didn't happen, if Blackout Tuesday didn't happen, all those things that happened in 2020, if that didn't happen, I kind of wonder what does what would this space look like now? 2020 was the first time I was able to really speak my mind without repercussions. That's the difference. So rewind, and we can't, obviously, this is just us, hypothesising, what do you think it would have looked like without George Floyd and Blackout Tuesday and BLM marches and that movement towards open conversation and more inclusivity? I think things would have changed, but it would have been at a slower pace because I was internally in some some businesses and companies, I was seeing change visibly, like going in and seeing young people of colour because somebody's in that in that company and they're bringing people through. 
Um, and also, undeniably, uh, undeniably, you can't ignore what the young people of colour are doing for this industry in terms of the music, that the content that they bring in, what they can contribute to this country financially. It's like people that are making money, right? And that's, that's cool, right? That's, that's sexy stuff for the industry. Quick, easy money, fast turnover. Also, what I'm very mindful of, I'm very mindful of the fast tracking. You know, when 2020 happens, like fast tracking, promotions, different job titles. Okay, so we are good. We are good for those titles. So why wasn't that happening 5, 10, 15 years ago? I would like to see more people of colour, in, particularly women, because I think there's more men of colour in, in leadership positions, right, in this country. I would like to see more women and more elders, right? Because we see elders in terms of white executives. I want to see black people taking retirement, not all of a sudden disappearing after whatever period of time in the industry. You're one of the first black women execs in this business. And one of the incredible things, and I'm, I hope you know this, is that there are so many of our peers, the women, black women in this business, that holds you up as someone that kind of opened the door and paved the way. Do you see yourself as a role model? Yes, I do, actually. I'm going to own that. Yeah, I do. Because I've also had longevity against all the odds. I'm still here. Over the years, I've worked at different businesses. I've worked with different circles of people. I work with people from different generations. And I can still maintain in any circle. If I'm hanging out with my elders, maintain. Go down to your 50s, 40s, 30s. I've got, I've got circles on, in every decade. And listen, without you, a lot of those great women that have been in the business now wouldn't be here either. So who are those women that you've seen along the way or that have been a part of your journey that have been influential, inspirational for you? For me, first and foremost, is most definitely Taponiswa and Mel, right? Them two, um, incredible. And I don't think I've worked at a label where I've had um, black female colleagues I don't think I have, come to think of it. So it's them two. And we got, we were very tight. We still are very tight. And when I stepped into Atlantic and I met Tappy, it was incredible. And I met Mel, who was incredible. You know, Mel didn't realise that she was incredible. I had to tell her. She knew she was putting in the work, but she wasn't being told how amazing she was. Working at Atlantic, we created such a bond. We actually called ourselves the Urban Angels. And we stuck together because we had to. And we delivered. So I take my hat off to those two. And they're still, I mean, they, they are still my, my mentors to this day. Give us a quick overview of your new role. You're senior label manager at The Orchard. Tell us what that's about. Basically, I manage the day-to-day of people's businesses. Setting up releases, getting releases onto the DSPs, uh, working with our retail marketing team and just being literally on the linchpin between the business, whether it's the label and the artists, um, getting their music to market and all the internal doings that, that, that makes a release. And it's across the board. It's not just one genre. Literally, I work across the board, different styles of music, different businesses, not only in the UK. So, yeah, it's it's running a label, basically, but multiple labels, not one label at a time. And you've worked in marketing, promotion, public relations, events. You've been an artist and your consultancy. So what's been the thing that's given you the most pleasure? Out of all what I've done. Oh, my God. Cookie crew aside, in terms of jobs or places where I've worked, you know, I'm, I'm really, I really like the space I'm in now. It's a very interesting space and the people that I work with 
are amazing. And what I like about the space that I've been in, and I've also been at this company for eight years, I've never stayed anywhere this long, is I like the people I work with. And that's a big deal. Other places I've worked, yeah, I like people I work with, but there's politics, the things that go on within, you know, spaces and labels that I've worked at. It's like, it's, it's not been good for the soul. And I think where I am now is, it's a beautiful space, to be honest. But without the past, I wouldn't be there. At the end of every Did You Know podcast, we ask some quick fire questions. So what are your remaining ambitions? To continue to do good and deliver the best, best of me. Do you have any regrets? Absolutely none. Absolutely none. And who has provided you with your biggest inspiration on your journey? Um, Vivian Scotchew, for sure. Vivian Scotchew. She knows that. If you were trying to encourage someone to follow in your footsteps, what would you say to them? You've got to have patience and don't expect things to happen overnight and manage your expectations. And what would you tell them not to do? Whatever you choose to go into, whatever side of the business you choose to go into, take time to learn it and not just focus on one thing. Take time to learn what goes on around you because you could easily get lost. And what do you hope the industry will give to people of colour in the, in the 21st century? Um, a fair and respectable opportunity. That's, that should be a given. And I, I, think, I think that's happening, um, but we still have a, a long way to go because things aren't going to happen overnight or within 24 months. A bit of time, but we're getting there. And you're a long way from sitting by that fire and just chilling, but when you kind of take stock and you've, it, this is done and you've, you're just kicking back, what do you want to be remembered for, Cookie? How I'd like to be remembered? Well, definitely for my contribution to the genre, to hip-hop, to the culture and to the community. And Cookie Crew, because I know you're still out there, so tell us about the Cookie Crew. Oh, they're still, listen, they're still going strong. That bond has never ended. People do not understand what that bond is. And we're still there. Lord knows if there's ever going to be a comeback, but you never know, it might surprise people. We're very happy and content where we are. I can only say, Cookie, that as ever, it's been an absolute pleasure connecting. I hope that when you listen back to this and when people get to listen to it, they realise what an absolute pioneer you've been, not just in the world of making music, but also in trailblazing for black women and for black people in our business. I'd like to thank you for that as someone that's known you for a long time. And it only leaves me to say, Cookie Price, thank you very much for being a guest on Did You Know? Thank you. I'm Adrian Sykes. Thanks for listening to Did You Know, a Downstreet production. Our thanks to Cookie for sharing her stories and to my partner in crime and true pioneer, Danny D. Thanks also to Sean Springer, our production team of Cass Denton and Lanique Swartz, and to Ella Ruby on the socials. Our theme tune is composed by Vega Brothers. Honourable mentions to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW for their support. You'll soon be able to apply to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know podcast. Keep listening for further information. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. 
and look out for our next episode with Amber Davis. 